sometimes you do need to be bold. It's so easy to kind of think, oh, I'll, I'll play this week's hit because it will get me out of a mess. But actually, it's so much more pleasurable playing something they don't know, but you're really convinced they'll love. Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. Even though the art of disc jockeying is nearing 100 years old, with modern DJs selling out stadiums and celebrated like rock stars the world over, there remain many misconceptions about DJing. Perhaps the most egregious of these misconceptions is the idea that DJing is easy, and anyone with half a sense of rhythm and the ability to push a button can do it. This is, to put it mildly, absolutely, patently, violently untrue. For the most talented DJs know how to read and feel a room better than anyone else on the planet, digging deep into their unique musical knowledge to spin records that will, above all else, create a vibe, get people moving and feeling good. This is not easy, and I speak to you today as a DJ who is learning this more and more. I imagine that dancing at a club with a good DJ must feel something like how going to a religious festival feels for the religious. This incredible experience of spiritual renewal is possible, and only possible, with a DJ who possesses hard-won skill, sensitivity, rhythm, creativity, curiosity, and above all else, the ability to create a unique atmosphere and play directly to the dance floor's often unconscious yearnings. To help me understand all of this better, I wanted to speak to one of the foremost historians of DJing. A talented and widely respected DJ himself, Mr. Bill Brewster is the co-author of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, the definitive history of the art form, while also contributing to The Guardian, The Independent, and many other publications. Bill also hosts a popular podcast called DJ History, and tours the world spinning the records he loves. In today's episode of Travels in Music, Bill and I talk about his personal history in dance music, the art and history of DJing, why disco is so important to modern music, the secret of the world's best DJs, and much more. Regardless of whether or not you've attended a club in your life, I don't think you'll want to miss sitting in on this fascinating conversation with the author and world-traveling DJ, Bill Brewster. So the first off, thank you so much for making time for me today. It, it, uh, I really appreciate it. It's a real treat to, to get to talk to you about some of these things. But the main Pleasure. reason, yeah, the main reason I wanted to talk to you is I'm reading. I think I told you on Twitter. I'm reading uh, last night a DJ saved my life. Your history of the disc jockey, and it's a, it's an absolutely fascinating history. Truly, um, made me consider uh, DJing as art in a way that I haven't before. Um, and I wanted to ask you first off, just why did you feel moved to write that book? Um, because we felt that it was the poor cousin of rock music, that dance music had never been really taken seriously, that the 
there were more books on the Beatles than there were on dance music. And yet it has such a huge and wide and deep history. And it seems strange to us that it just didn't have the same kind of critical interest as uh, as rock music and pop music. And I think part of the reason for that is because dance music is really about about how the body reacts to music rather than how the ear do, rather than how the ear does. So lyrically, it's often less interesting in than rock and pop music, but uh, rhythmically, it's often more interesting. So. You know, and, and, I, and I'd been a DJ for a long time as well, and it just always really, really irritated me that um, it, it, it just wasn't treated with the same seriousness, and I felt that it deserved to be treated with that seriousness. So you're obviously, you, you were when you wrote the book, I think you wrote the book about 16, or the book came out about 16 years ago, I believe, for the, for the first edition. A, a little more, actually. It came out October 99. Okay, right. Okay. Um and I was going to ask, so at that point when you were writing this book, you'd obviously been a DJ for a long time. You'd been around club culture for a long time. But when you really started to get into the research and talking to some of these amazing DJs from the 70s, like New York scene and stuff, what surprised you the most? Like which part of the, the story of the DJ did you find most surprising as you were getting into this research? I guess what surprised us was just how deep the history was because... We we did know about New York. That was kind of one of the things that we did know about because both myself and Frank had met in New York and we were living in New York. So so we, that was the initial spur to actually write the book was um, just listening to, to some of the older DJs and older clubbers telling us about the loft or the Paradise Garage or the shelter and places like that. So that, that was the... Th- the oral history was so strong in New York that we couldn't believe that nobody had written these stories down. So you talk to some of the guys that you'd meet in clubs and they'd tell you about a particular DJ breaking a record and you're like, how the hell can you remember who broke a record 20 years ago? And yet, and yet they did, you know, they really did. So, so there was this incredible oral history tradition and and it was the same in the UK as well of, of people having these amazing memories, not just of experiences, but of things that happened and, and the, and the records where the records were first played and which DJ first played them. And it just seemed criminal really that nobody had written it down. But I guess the biggest surprise for us was just how far back it went. So we were astonished to find that people were building double decks in in the in the 1950s, for example. So I, I guess what really surprised us was just how, how deep and far that it went back. The history of the DJ and the development of the DJ as uh, as a tastemaker is fascinating. So when you talk about a DJ breaking a record, what do you mean by that for people who might not be familiar with that kind of uh, terminology? Okay, well, I guess it's the same as a radio DJ. Um, I mean, the, the function is essentially the same. Um, you know, you, you might you might remember as a kid hearing a particular DJ having an exclusive on a record, so they would play that record before anybody else. And it's the same with with nightclubs as well. So a particular DJ would be back, would um, have a record exclusively and would play it, or the record had been completely ignored by everyone and a particular DJ had picked up on, say, a B-side and played it to death until really that record uh, became a hit. A really good example of that was one of the DJs at um, 
at uh, Studio 54 called Richard Kazel play Broke I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor, which actually began life as a B-side. So it's instances like that where you're talking about one particular DJ being given credit for, for breaking out a record from, from nowhere, really. I found that bit amazing. I mean, you know, when you think of like disco anthems or just anthems of the late 70s in general, I Will Survive is certainly near the top of that list. And without that DJ, that maybe doesn't become a hit, right? Which is completely mind blowing because actually when you hear it, it's almost over commercial. Um, right. If you know what I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's been perhaps because it's been so overplayed over the years that it's not a record that I think anybody needs to hear anymore. But but it is a brilliant record and it is pretty amazing that it didn't start out as an A-side. Speaking of uh, I Will Survive and Survival, I mean, one of the things that's kind of heartbreaking for me, at least, I'm a, I'm a disco lover, um, unapologetically so. And one of the heartbreaking things for me going through your book is how many people, how many of these amazing figures, these really crucial figures to the rise of club culture and dance music around the world, how many of these people ended up dying really young as a result of, of AIDS. Um, that must have been pretty difficult for you going, going and doing that research and hearing some of these stories. Yeah, it, um, I mean, it is a fundamental part of the kind of disco era and also to a slightly lesser extent, the house era as well, because when I moved to New York in 1994, it was still really happening in a big way then. I mean, uh, I remember going to the wake for um, one of the guys out of CNC Music Factory who died from complications related to AIDS. So it was still really, really going on then. And many, many really talented people dying at an extremely young age. So, yeah, Pat Patrick Cowley died very young. Sylvester died very young. There were so many disco artists that died young. And also there were other things going on as well. There was a, there was a fire in a disco that killed uh, a, a number of clubbers and the resident DJ there in New York. So there were lots of other things going on as well. So there were many... DJs that didn't make it through to their 40th birthdays. And that obviously is a really horrible and sobering thing to have to document. Certainly, certainly. For, for people who are listening and who might not have read your book yet, um, and for just general listeners, I mean, when you mention disco to the average person, a lot of people still kind of snicker. And there's, there's still a lot of, um, at least in my experience, there's still a lot of negative associations or people think it's cheesy or whatever associated with this sort of big commercial era of disco, sort of the late 70s. But why is like the early, earlier era of disco, why is that so important to the development of the club DJ and the remix? And if you could talk a little bit about how disco, why it's so important in the context of global dance music today. Global dance music today would not exist without disco. Disco is effectively the kind of the place where we start. It's the motherload of modern dance music. And almost every, in fact, every style of music that exists today owes something of its existence to disco. Even if you can't hear it in the music itself, it undoubtedly would not have existed in the same context and the same way without the existence of disco. Disco began... Um, the club sound system began with disco. The idea of mixing records began with disco, even before hip-hop DJs were mixing records. Um, the 12-inch single began without, with disco. And most of the, the culture that we associate with club culture and DJs now all began with disco. So even by the time that house music happened, which is where 
we began to see uh, dance music, music as a global phenomenon. All of the things that happen in house music had already happened with disco. And also, if you listen to all of the early house records, almost all of them, without exception, have stolen things from disco as well, whether it's a bass line or whether they've sampled a little string part or, or whatever. But almost all of them relied very heavily on disco records in, in the very early days of house music. So really, disco, without disco, we would not have a, a global dance music scene in the way that we have today. I found it really interesting in another interview, you said that the first uh, couple of times you, you heard house music in the 80s, you couldn't really get into it. And I found that interesting um, and because I had a similar experience. But when and how did you finally sort of get house music? Well, I'd been a fan of electronic music for, for, for a long time. I remember I, I bought Being Boiled by the Human League when that was released in 1978. I bought um tvo d and warm leatherette by the normal um so i i was a fan of electronic music um and i i got into electro and uh, and lots of different other electronic sounds but i think what deterred me from house music is when i heard it in a club being played only as house music so I, i'd actually bought a few house records before that um, I bought a, a thing, an early release on tracks in 1986 without actually knowing it was a house record. To me, it was just kind of, I don't, I don't know what I thought it was. I thought it was like an electro record, really. But what put me off was I went to see Mark Moore, who was the man behind S Express. And he played in uh, a club in Brixton called The Fridge, and, and he came on, and at that stage in London, everyone was mixing records together, so you'd hear hip-hop mixed with go-go and old soul records, and you might hear a Nina Simone record, and then you'd hear, you know, Soul Sonic Force, so it was all very, very eclectic. Mark Moore came on and played nothing but house records, and it was like an assault on the senses. I was like, what is he doing? I just couldn't understand it at all. And um, and I think it's a matter of retuning your ears. It took, really took me a while to do it. This happened in October 87, and it took me really until the summer of 1989 to fully understand what it was about when a friend took me to a, a gay club called Troll, and, uh, and I experienced it again in the context of this incredible club with all these really amazingly friendly people. And suddenly, you know, the switch turned on and, uh, and I became obsessive about it after that. So, but it did really take me a long time. I and mean, do you think it was just that one night at that club that, that changed things for you or? Yes, I do. Yeah. It was, it was, it was the environment as much as the music. The, the fridge was a huge club that held maybe, 1500 2000 people it was like a, a an old theater um I, I don't know if you know some of the old clubs in new york but the, the nearest one i can think of in new york that's similar would be may, maybe the roxy or a smaller version of the palladium but certainly it was it was a big place whereas troll was tiny it held maybe 250 people and it was like a little club next to heaven which is the most famous gay club in london and but it was separate and they allowed women into troll Although there weren't many women, there were, there were some women there, whereas Heaven only started admitting women 
in about uh, 1994, I think. Um, so, so it was the context, I think, that made a big difference, as well as the music. And I, th- and I think also there have been a lot of pirate radio. I was a big fan of Kiss FM, which was a big pirate radio station in London, and they'd obviously played a lot of new music between 87 when I first saw Mark Moore and 89 when I, when I went to that uh, Club Troll. So, so I think my ears had just become a bit more attuned to it. So I think for a lot of outsiders, they look at clubs and they look at electronic music festivals um, or just dance music festivals in general. And a lot of outsiders, they just don't get it. It kind of reminds me like I'm a Grateful Dead fan and like people just don't get the dead. You know, you either get it or you don't. There's not many people in between. And I think a lot of people look at club culture and dance music and they don't really get it. But in your mind, like, well, first off, what drew you to start clubbing? Like what drew you about spending time in those environments? And what makes a really good club experience for you? Well, I started getting into clubs firstly through a little bit through Northern Soul. I grew up in a in a town called Grimsby in the in the northeast of England, and and next to Grimsby is a, a small seaside resort called Cleethorpes, and they and they were doing Northern Soul all nighters, and a couple of friends took me to those, so that was my my first experience of of clubbing. But I think what really got me into it was I was working, I moved to London to train as a chef in one of the big hotels there. And uh, we would finish work at midnight and have nowhere to go. And and in the 70s and 80s in London, although it was a big city, there was really not very much open after 11 o'clock. But clubs were open. Uh, and they were usually up until two or three o'clock in the morning. So we would go. We started going clubbing, really, because we had nowhere else to go. And we wanted to unwind before going to bed. So I think that kind of gave me a little bit of the bug for it. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that that was fairly crucial. And also, at the same time, I was buying uh, the New Musical Express. And, and, and there was a big crossover at that time between kind of it's hard to describe this kind of music but there was a sort of a danceable rock style of music that was around in those days probably typified best by a label called z which was run from both new york and paris that was releasing things like was not was uh, kid creole uh, coty mundi and lots of kind of left field disco records and and those were my route into dance music so i'd come from a kind of post punk background but these records were kind of danceable but with a with a punk a- attitude um and i really really got into this label z and through z i started to discover more kind of obviously dance floor records like uh, rocker's revenge um walking on sunshine and things like that and how did you make the transition to DJing? Like, how did that start for you? Well, I, I was in a I was in a band first of all in 1982. I, fo- I formed a, a kind of a post punk band that were very inspired by uh, bands like A Certain Ratio and Twenty Three Skidoo. We sort of wanted to play kind of. We were basically northern white blokes that wanted to try and play funky music, and probably failed to do that but but at the same time did something semi interesting in our in our failed attempts um and, and when that fell apart in the mid 80s um we released a couple of singles but when that fell apart i uh, started to to play a little bit before that i'd always made tapes for when we did gigs i would make um 
tapes of music that we would play between the bands and things like that. So I, I, I'd always been a record collector as well. Been a very keen record collector since I was about 13 or 14. So, so by the time the band split up in the mid-80s, I probably had maybe a thousand records then. So I, it was a, a relatively modest collection, but, but a lot better than most other people. And I started getting invited to bring my records and come and play at people's house parties. And, and, and it sort of built from there. Um, and then I got more and more obsessed with it, really. And uh, finally, in 1989, I bought a set of decks. Uh, because once house arrived, before that, it didn't matter that you couldn't mix because you just played one record after the other. Right. Um, but once house happened and, and it was clear that to DJ properly, you really had to know how to mix, uh, I bought a pair of decks and kind of taught myself how to do it. And did you love it right away? Or what was your experience, like your earliest experiences like, like DJing in clubs? Uh, well... I was completely obsessed with it. Um, when I got those decks, I remember literally coming back from work every night and just playing records for three hours and not listening to the radio, not playing, not watching anything on TV, just literally coming home and mixing records together. I did that really for probably about at least a year. And then I started to get a few gigs warming up for people in... I bought the decks in 89. By 1990, I was starting to get warm-up gigs for for some of the kind of rare groove and house DJs at the time. I remember the first gig, paid gig I got was warming up for a guy called Roy the Roach in, in a little warehouse in King's Cross. But I think it wasn't until I moved to New York in 94 where I really um, f- found a kind of a direction and and uh, and, a, and a route into it. Before that, I think I was being a bit of a dilettante, really. And also, I was really mainly earning a living as a as a writer more than a DJ. But I think New York really just it really really inspired me in so many different ways, and and it made me a much much better DJ. Being able to go out and listen to amazing DJs every week and two or three times a week. You know, I'd go, I'd go and watch um, Junior Vasquez play on a Saturday. I watched um, Louis Vega play on a Wednesday at the Sound Factory Bar. I'd go and watch Danny Tenagli when he was playing at the Roxy on a Friday. And then there were, you know, David Morales. There were just so many really good DJs in New York that you could learn from. So that really taught me a lot. And I think it gave me a proper direction of, of and, and what I really like about DJs now is DJs that have a sound so so they they make all of these different records fit into this kind of um, atmosphere that they want to create and that's to me that's what a really good DJ does it, they, they can take different records from disparate styles and somehow create a sound that's uniquely theirs um, I, when I was I, I was playing at Glastonbury um, about a month ago, and my and my wife and uh, two of her friends were trying to find this place that I was playing in. It was in the middle of this wood, and uh, they couldn't find the stage. And then one of them heard, heard some music and said, "That that's that's Bill playing. I, I know <laughs> that's got to be Bill playing because it's a Bill record." And she didn't mean she knew the record. She meant it's the kind of thing that I would play. And so I followed this music until I got to this this kind of little stage, and and that's where I was playing. So and and I feel very strongly about that. I really love the idea of having a kind of a 
a sound, which means that you might not play a record that you know is brilliant because it, it just does not fit into how you view what you want to present to people. I think that, for me, that's a very important thing as a DJ. And how, like, how does your sound evolve over time? Like, I imagine that your sound as a DJ today is different than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I'd say 20 years ago, I probably was playing mainly, let me think, what day, uh, 1996. Yeah, I, I mean, it is different. It's not fundamentally different, but yeah, you're right, it is different. I would say in 96, I was playing mainly house records with maybe about 20, 30% disco records mixed in. Whereas now I kind of, music has opened up much more so um for example there weren't many slower electronic records coming out in 1996 and i really love kind of records that go from about 105 bpm up to about 115 bpm kind of electronic records that are slow but funky they didn't really exist too much in 96 whereas there's loads of them there and and so yeah i've incorporated more of those kind of things into my sets and i tend to start out quite slowly when i play and and try and gradually build the tempo up whereas i think in 96 i was pretty much playing from around you know 120 to 125 bpm whereas these days if i started a set i might well start around 105 bpm and just kind of build it up depending on what what period of the night that i'm playing well, how do you pre generally prepare for a set? I mean, I think I was looking at your schedule. I believe you've got a gig on Friday or something later this week. Like, how, how does that work for you? Like, are you thinking about it all week? Are you, are you gathering your records? Or do you, do you have an idea of the first song you want to play? Like, what's your process like? Okay, so now I play, um, I use USB sticks and I use Rekordbox, which is a, pre a piece of proprietary software that's compatible with Pioneer CDJs. So... I during the week, um, every Thursday, I go through all of the new music I've been sent and listen to it all and then put the good ones to one side. And on Friday, I do a, a podcast every week. And from that music that I've distilled for my podcast, not all of which would necessarily be dance music, I take the most dance floor friendly, good tracks and add them to the pot of uh my I have a folder called Playout in iTunes and I add the new music into that and then export it to a USB stick on the Friday or the Saturday depending on when I'm playing um, and I never ever think about anything until I get to the gig other than that I've got the you know a nice selection of music that is varied when I get to the gig I might then start thinking about what the first tune might be, but it would really be dependent on the kind of music that the, the, the DJ before me is playing. And then from that first record, uh, I then start thinking about what I'm going to do after that, but I really don't plan. I don't like planning. I think the joy of DJing for me is spontaneity, of changing your mind at the last minute and putting another tune on and that you hadn't planned and, and seeing it really work and all of, you know, I, I love the spontaneity of it. I never, ever plan sets. When you, when you talk about getting to the venue where you're playing, like, do you try to get a sense of like, just looking around and talking to people? Um, like, does that, does that impact your, your, uh, your set list before the show? Um, not necessarily talking to people, but I do like to be there about an hour before so that I can, 
look at what's going on, look at who's in the crowd and how the crowd are responding to the music that the DJ is playing, um, and just generally kind of soak up the atmosphere and get a feel for what's going on, um, how they're responding to particular records. If they're responding badly to particular records, I kind of make a mental note to maybe steer clear of those styles of music. And sometimes, you know, you kind of, a DJ's doing all right and the crowd uh, are sort of, it's kind of semi-warmed up. And sometimes you think, actually, let's try something completely different from what they're playing because I have a feeling the reason that the, the dance floor's not full is because they're not fully embracing what this person is playing. So I, I might play a completely different record at the start just to see what happens. And then if that's a disaster, then you kind of work out from there where to go. Um, I, I find usually the first half an hour is often a process of elimination. You kind of you're eliminating the suspects from your from your record box, <laughs> really. And and once you do that, you get a fuller idea of really what they're wanting and which way to go. Um, and on a good night, it feels like it. It's a really strange feeling of feeling like someone's actually telling you what to play, even though they're not. So, yeah, it's really hard to describe. I've had It doesn't happen very often, maybe once every two or three years, but occasionally a gig goes so well that it's, you know which record to play next without thinking about it. It's a really strange feeling, um, but it, it really doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it's really magical. Interesting. The DJ gods smile on you once in a while. Interesting. I guess so, yeah. I mean, sadly, it doesn't happen all the time. But, but <laughs> if it did, it would be boring. And um, what makes it great is the fact it happens rarely. Well, how do you know that a gig is not going well? Is it simply that people aren't dancing? Like, is it, is it as simple as that? Essentially, yeah. But you know what? Sometimes, um, I, I remember when I interviewed Cold Cut, they, they talked about what they call cleansing the dance floor. In other words, they deliberately play a record that would get rid of everybody off the dance floor because they felt that the DJ before them was playing music that they weren't really feeling in some way and they didn't want the dance floor to continue in that manner. I do do that sometimes. If I think the DJ is playing stuff that either I don't like or I just don't have with me, then I might play a record that's so different it actually kind of almost empties the dance floor. And that allows me to start again and then build it up in, in a way that I want so the people are on the dance floor for the music that I'm playing. I don't do that often, but sometimes it is necessary. I remember when um, I interviewed Giles Peterson. He uh, played this really big gig in Ibiza. And Giles Peterson, I don't know if you know his music, but he plays very kind of jazzy music. And he was coming on after Carl Cox, who plays techno. And he was obviously petrified because he's like, what the hell am I going to do here? So he, he played the jazziest record he could find um, because obviously he felt like the only thing I can do is do my thing. And so he played the most extreme version of what he played and and then kind of built things back up from there. And he said, actually, it worked okay. It wasn't, no, no one died. It wasn't a disaster. Um, and in the end, everything was okay. And I think sometimes you have to be a bit, um, sometimes you do need to be bold. It's so easy to kind of think, oh, I'll, I'll play this week's hit because it will get me out of a mess. But actually, 
it's so much more pleasurable playing something they don't know, but you're really convinced they'll love if you do play it. And that's the joy for me of DJing. Of, of some, I love it when people come up and say, what is this? It's amazing. Because that, really, that's what your job is. Your job is you're a music salesman. You're selling music to people as well as entertaining them. You're really saying, it's, it's, it's really two hours of you saying, this is what's good. And that's how I view DJing. I'm, I'm kind of really trying to get people to love the music I play and hopefully go and buy it. Well, that ties in nicely to a question which you've sort of already answered. But when I was reading last night, a DJ saved my life, reading about all these amazing uh, disco DJs from the 70s. I wanted to ask you, like, what do those guys have in common with the best DJs today? In essence, like what, in your view, makes an amazing DJ? Is it simply having the best taste in the room or what? I think it's having the most singular taste in the room rather mm. than the best. Because the best taste is, is really a very subjective thing, isn't it? Of course, it? of course. Because you can't, you can't, it's not like someone's the fastest in the world. You can measure that. But someone having good taste is so subjective. So I think it's people that have a really singular view of how the music is that they play. And a great example of that, I think, or the best example is Larry Levan playing at the Paradise Garage, just because he had kind of a really off-the-wall view of, of music. So he would play The Clash, but he would then play an R&B record, and then he'd play a disco record, and then, and then you know, he just played loads of different stuff. And then he played an electronic record. He just played a really incredible array of music, and but made it work, made it sound like all of these things were were built for that system and built for that club and built for his taste. So that's, it, it kind of goes back to some of the things that we've been talking about before, that kind of singularity and vision that certain DJs have when they, when they play. And, and all, I think all the best ones do have that. They've got a kind of certain feel. You know, when I first used to go and watch Danny Tenaglia play in, in New York, what, what I loved about him, there were kind of, as soon as he'd play a record you've never heard before, you just think, wow, this is such a Danny record. And, and, and it was to do with these really subtle little percussive touches that he would find in records. And he, and he really, really searched hard to find these records. Sometimes, I remember once he, he got this record that had eight bars on it that was good. And so he edited these eight bars into a track and then kind of overdubbed a couple of little percussive tracks on it to the point where this basically sounded like a record he'd made. And because he just had such a, a, a unique perspective of the kind of music that he wanted to play. And, and those are the kind of DJs that I admire the most, I think. So on that, on a related note, I guess, is, is we're in a moment um, that it seems to be celebrating the DJ in some ways, you know, with these massive festivals and, you know, DJs as celebrities, um, DJs getting their own music uh, heard on the radio and becoming hits and stuff. Um, are you optimistic about the future of the art form? I, I'm always optimistic about it, yeah. I mean, you know, in the UK, there's a lot of cynicism towards um, EDM, for example. Yes. Um, because I think the general feeling among people, kids there is that EDM is, is very crass, it's very white, and most of the kids are getting into it have no idea that this music originally began in ghettos in Detroit and Chicago and New York and places like that. It is so removed from its African-American roots. And all of those things are true. But 
for me, you just think it's exciting to think that there's 12, 13, 14-year-old kids now that are loving electronic music because they've discovered Skrillex and they've discovered, you know, all, all of these EDM artists. Um, and I think that's a good thing because when those guys and girls get to their 18th, 19th birthdays and they get a little bit of kit in their bedroom and they start messing around trying to make tunes, the kind of music they will play will be much more developed than, than kind of, you know, some of the the dafter elements of EDM. So I, I, I honestly think there could be a real explosion in, of interest in electronic music in about six, seven, eight, nine years in the United States that, that really was sparked by EDM. We, we had a similar thing happening in the UK when this music style called hardcore, which is what was the bridging gap between house and drum and bass hardcore was the kind of bridging style of music and loads of kids got into hardcore and then got into perhaps more sophisticated styles of dance music after that you know but their first port of call was here in the prodigy for example i think the prodigy were very much uh, uh, one of those groups that a lot of people in their teens got into and then you know, moved on to other things. Not not to suggest for a minute that the Prodigy aren't a good band, but, you know, some of their early stuff was fairly um, visceral and almost punk-like uh, in, in its approach. So, so you can see its appeal to teenagers. And so, yeah, I do feel, I always feel optimistic about, about things. You know, as long as people have legs, they'll always want to dance. <laughs> right. Well, what what's one piece of advice you'd give any new DJ then? Um... Don't get so fixated on mixing. Um, mi- mixing, mixing is not a skill. Um, it's a craft. It's 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 like saying a good carpenter is someone who can bang a nail in. You know, the nail joins two bits of wood together, and a mix brings two songs together. But it's not actually a skill, really. You know, any old idiot can learn how to mix within. I reckon within a couple of weeks, you could learn to mix records fairly easily, especially with the technology available now. For me, DJing is really about music discovery and finding music that's unique to you, and finding a way of presenting that music that you've found in a way that's unique and interesting. And I think it's it's really important to me as a DJ that I'm that I kind of I certainly steal records from other DJs that I hear. I do that all the time. You know, I hear a great record and I'll ask someone what it is. But I, but I but when you're bringing it into the context of the music you play, somehow that record sounds different when you play it to the way that someone else might play it because of the music that you're surrounding it with. So it's really, I think, finding a new, a unique style that is yours and uniquely yours and presenting it to the public. At this stage in your career, so you, you wear several hats. You're a DJ. You used to put on a big party called Low Life. Yeah, we stopped, we stopped it yeah. after 20 years last October, actually. So, I'm, yeah, I'm taking a break from that. Why was that? You just wanted to go out on top kind of thing, like while it's still fresh and interesting? Exactly, yeah. I mean, we, 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 got, we celebrated the 20th anniversary in March last year. And uh, we were... We did a we did a boat party in Croatia. We did we did um, another party in Wales at a festival, and then and then I, I said to Frank, my partner, shall we just you know let's let's finish it? We've done twenty years. That's an achievement. Let's finish it now. 
because it was still really good and, and I didn't want it to stop being good. And when things are really good, there's only one way for them to go and that's down. And I, and I didn't want to feel like it was, it was starting to get worse and worse and then we stopped it. Um, so we, we went out on a high, you know, we, we sold out within about a week and a half and uh, had a fantastic final party and yeah, that was it. So, but yeah, I mean, p- people are still, people still ask me now, are you going to do more low life parties? I mean, it, yeah, I get that a lot on email and Twitter and various other social media outlets. I was going to ask you, like, what what are you most excited about right now? Then, like, which which of your projects, whether it's DJing or writing or anything else, what uh, what's exciting to you right now? Well, it's quite nice having having run DJ history and low life for a long time, and also Frank and I did a, a festival for three years. I don't have any of those responsibilities. It's quite nice just to be able to concentrate on doing things that I love without getting bogged down in administration. That's exciting. And also I'm in the middle of building a new website uh, for, just for me rather than a, a general one. And that's quite exciting as well because I've never done that before. Um, so, and, and then apart from that, the other exciting thing on the horizon is I'm coming out to Southeast Asia to DJ in the summer. So I'm kind of just... Uh, we're, we're, we're having a family holiday over the summer with my wife and kids and I'm DJing as we travel around so I'm playing in Ho Chi Minh City uh, Bangkok Jakarta, Bali and Singapore so I'm looking forward to doing that over the summer and then as soon as I get back I'm doing a couple of festivals in the UK I'm excited to hear you're coming to uh, to Thailand. I'm I'm speaking to you from Thailand today, so I might have to travel down to Bangkok and uh, and catch your set. Oh, that would right, be great. Okay. How, how far are you from Bangkok? Um, I'm not far. It's like a maybe an hour long flight. I'm in Chiang Mai, in the north of the country, so it's not not very far. Right. Okay. Well, it, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's supposed to be August the 11th at um, Coup d'Etat, I think. Very cool. Very cool. Well, before I let you go, tell me about DJHistory.com. Okay, well, we we set up djhistory.com a couple of months after um, last night DJ Saved My Life came out. Initially, really, just as a sort of a holding page to advertise the book. But in 2003, we added a forum to it, and uh, and the forum really took off, and we had many, many of of the greatest DJs in the world started posting on it. So it became a real, it grew incredibly because of that. You know, we had the guys from Optimo posting, David Mancuso even posted occasionally, Francois Kavorkian. There were a lot of, a lot of really well-respected DJs started posting on it. And it became a bit of a hangout for, for, you know, series collectors, really good DJs and just music enthusiasts. And, uh, and that brought with it an incredible amount of traffic. So it kind of built up as a result from that but we built it i guess as a kind of a, a general resource and uh just for stuff that we'd done interviews we'd done and dance music generally uh but um in the end it was a bit of a victim of facebook really we kind of you know that facebook became so popular as a place to hang out and chat about things that it kind of killed the forum and once the forum started to die it it made the rest of the site wither a little so we decided to <coughs> shut it down after what was about 17 years existence so it's had a good run and at its height it was it was great but i'm i'm kind of keen to do something 
I'm going to do something similar with with my own personal website with much more modest uh, aims and goals, really. But I will be adding quite a lot of the content that I've written over the years. So hopefully it will have some of the appeal of DJ history. And can people find that at BillBrewster.com? I think it'll be BillBrewster.me, actually. But okay. but um, you know what? Once If you Google my name in about three or four months, I think it should come up. Um, Great. I'm just about to start. I've just been doing the wireframes, and we're just about to start building it now. So it's it's in the early stages, but um, hopefully it'll be live before Christmas. Great. Well, Bill Brewster, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. Thanks for thanks for the call. you enjoyed sitting in on my chat with mr bill brewster and if you have any interest in djing or you you're just a music fan and you'd like to learn more about the history of what is still an emerging and a very interesting art form be sure to pick up bill's book last night a dj saved my life it's really a great read and do check out his podcast dj history and to find links to everything we talked about in today's episode and to learn more about bill and his work go to travelsandmusic.com slash bill dash Brewster. Before I let you go, a quick reminder that the best way you can show your support for this podcast is to go to iTunes, make sure you subscribe, and leave a rating and a review. I know I say it a lot, but these ratings and reviews are enormously important for the success of any podcast, and it would mean a lot to me if you could go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Until next time, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you once again for spending part of your day with me today. And remember that life is short, so be sure to take some time out of your schedule this weekend to dance. I'll talk to you again next week. 